Well, hello and welcome to the Hayden Clark Show. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited for today's interview. I have a special guest with me, Ben Watkins. Ben, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited to have you, and uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourself, but before I do, I always forget this part. Uh, if you enjoy the uh, the show here, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave a review on the podcast if you're listening, share it with your friends, of course, and if you benefit from this, uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. There's a link in the description, or it's simply patreon.com forward slash Hayden Clark. All right, Ben, again, thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to have you on. Um, I've seen you around the, the interwebs on Twitter and, of course, the YouTube channel, podcast, all of that. And, um, of course, you did a debate recently. And, uh, you know, it's, I think that might have solidified for me. This is a really genuine – I mean, I always suspected all along this is just a really genuine guy uh, on the opposing side from me as a theist. And so I really like listening to thoughtful atheists and agnostics who take arguments seriously, take the philosophy of religion seriously. And I think that's who you are. Uh, hope you don't prove me wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I know you are. But uh, anyway, that's kind of how I became familiar with you, just kind of hanging out in those circles on the interwebs. So, uh, yeah, I really am happy to have you on. And um, for those who don't know you, I thought it might be helpful to give a brief introduction. Um, yeah, so my name is Benjamin Blake Speed Watkins. Yes, that is my real name. Um, I wasn't nice. there when my parents gave it to me, but it does make me easily to find on social media and Google. So... <laughs> I just kind of take advantage of it. Um, I live with my wife and daughter in Norfolk, Virginia, um, and I work as a nuclear engineer by by day, and I'm an internet philosopher slash Hegelian by night. Um, I am the host of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast, where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theist perspectives. Very good. And uh, there are links in the description to the Real Atheology uh, website and YouTube channel. I'm sure you can find the podcast on on one of those if you want to go to that as well, or just go wherever you get your podcast. You can type it in there. I'm sure. But uh, tell me about your your history with religion. Were you previously a theist? A lot of atheists that I talked to were previously theists, so I don't know if that was your story. If not, just kind of tell me what your story is. Um. Yes. So I was uh, raised a theist um, in the deep south of um, South Carolina. Um, in a very uh, conservative, evangelical, Quaker-like um, tradition. Cool. And so I began to doubt my faith um, kind of after I graduated from college when I was about 23 or 24. Um, and by about 25 or 26, um, I was just very, very deep in the philosophy of religion. And so when I had started to doubt my faith, um, philosophy of religion and apologetics in particular – um, it was kind of a gateway, um, for me into philosophy more broadly. And mm -hmm. so it was just kind of natural to dive into the philosophy of religion because it was, there's just so many points in philosophy that philosophy of religion touches on, um, you know, just a, you know, a cursory glance through the questions in the philosophy of religion and you end up in philosophy of mind, you end up mm -hmm. in ethics, you end up in metaphysics, you end up in epistemology, um, you just end up everywhere. And so I've just uh, continued uh, that project um, and kind of using that as my base for building my own worldview. Kind of once I stood on the ashes of, you know, the old worldview that I had outgrown, you know, there was this now lifelong project of building a new worldview. Yeah. Did you say that you were or were not um familiar with the apologetic side of theism uh, while you were still a theist? Well, so I was not familiar with the term apologetics, nor okay. was I familiar with, you know, someone who did apologetics. However, I was aware that there were resources mm -hmm. um, for diving into my faith. So, when I graduated from college, I kind of had one of those, you know, growing up existential moments of, you know, like, well, I've got to get all of my life in line now. Right. So like, you know, I was reading on personal finance, you know, about how to, nice. you know, get money straight. But then I was also looking into this, you know, I'd had, I'd been having doubts with my own faith. And so I was like, okay, now's the time 
to dig into what is it that I actually believe about religion. And so there was no moment where like, you know, a, mm. a light switched for me. It was a very waning mm. process. It was, you know, I'd, I'd come into a pro come to a problem and get stumped on that problem. And then I'd move to another problem and I'd get stumped on that problem. And then I would, and it just kind of kept going. And so I modify and chip away at my view until finally one day it was just unrecognizable. I, you know, mm. I was like, I'm so far from where I started where am I now? Right. And so um, from there, I just kind of landed in the metaphysical naturalist slash secular humanist camp. Yeah. And, and um, at what point does the real, athe real atheology begin and kind of how did that get started? Um, yeah. So real atheology is a project that was started by Justin Schieber, who was of reasonable doubts. And so this was kind of his project that started that wanted to explore, um, philosophy of religion seriously from non-theistic perspectives. It's reasonable um, it, doubts. Is that a pun on reasonable faith? It just clicked on me. I think so. Okay. I'd have to ask him to confirm that, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so I wasn't part of that project. So, oh, yeah. um, I'm, you know, kind of outside of that project. I was brought on to real atheology by Justin Schieber. Awesome. To, we were trying to fill in, you know, kind of a hole that we saw in the um, secular circles that we were a part of. And that was this, you know, very robust, um, philosophically and scientifically informed um, way of thinking about big questions in the philosophy of religion. And so um, we would read literature um, on both sides, you know, the best, uh, most up-to-date literature. We would develop our own arguments. We would debate apologists. Um, we'd inter we interview uh, professional philosophers. And so one of uh, the projects, since I've taken, uh, taken the helm of the project, is to kind of see what religious concepts can look like without perfect being theism. So it's this idea of saying, hey, atheists at their core are committed to taking these models of God and just doing away with those models of God. Well, what if we could have other models of the divine? What could those look like? Um, what could religion evolve into? What can fill that, you know, God-shaped hole, to use the, the kind of colloquial metaphor? Mm. Um, and so just exploring that and seeing what, what um, we can salvage of our religious concepts um, mm. once something like superstition and dogma are kind of shed and a more humanist ethic and naturalist metaphysic are put in their place. What, what models of God were you, did you have in mind opposed to perfect being theology? Um, so there's several models that I um, find quite plausible. Um, so the pantheistic model, so the idea that, that the divine is just another concept that refers to um, nature. And so that these are two sides of the same coin. Um, I also like um, religious traditions that don't have um, metaphysical baggage. So uh, Buddhism is a good example of this, where you will find a form of life and a philosophy, um, a way of, you know, that will point you down the path, but it will explain, to, you know, part of the philosophy is, is that you have to go down the path yourself. And so it gives you tools mm -hmm. for living a life. Um, and so I, there's also other models like Taoism, where it's just, it's like 81 po uh, poems, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just run through the Tao Te Ching and they're different way. These are poems that you would think about over the course of your entire life. And what they are, are just different ways of helping you step back and see the world differently. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't anything kind of, you know, metaphysic that you have to adopt in order to understand these forms of life that we would, we can properly call religious. Right. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask is it sounds like religion without, without God. And is that, uh, is that possible? I think it's very possible. Um, okay. So I actually think that uh, monotheism is 
you know, a pretty late and local, um, more recent development. So most of human history um, has not had this monotheistic concept of God. Most, um, you know, pre human civilization or, you know, the, the earliest religious co concepts were animist so that they saw um, divine spirits within, you know, the animals that they hunted, the plants that they um, harvested or, you know, mm. were surrounded by um, that's, those were the kind of religious concepts that, that really are the hallmark of the earliest human civilizations. And it wasn't really until, um, you know, the time of, of Moses, um, that time period in history when there's this monotheistic God, this idea of there's just one supreme God um, and everything else is just kind of subservient to this. But even in animalism or uh, pantheism or something like that, you're still talking about something divine. Um Yes, something worthy of our reverence and awe. I guess originally I was thinking you were talking about religion that would square with someone like yourself, an atheist or even an agnostic. And to me, that would be ruling out anything divine. So maybe I missed actually the context of this whole conversation. But uh, is that not what you were getting at when you were talking about finding some kind of religion that an atheist could use? Or, was you, or were you just talking about different religions altogether? Well, yeah, so there's different, I, I consider there's different models of the divine. And so do I think that we're in possession of the one right model of what the divine would be? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but I also recognize that our religious concepts are fairly new. You know, they've only, religious concepts have only been on the scene for, you know, something like 60,000 years of history. And if, you know, we're to suppose that we have another 60,000, 100,000, 500,000 years, you know, what are these religious concepts going to look like? Are they going to, you know, some okay. people think that, you know, this is just going to die out. It's just everyone's going to become atheist and then there's just going to be no religion. Nothing's going to replace it. It's just going to completely die out. Um, and it's just a spandrel that just serves no purpose anymore. I don't think that's right. I think that, I think that we were selected for kind of a religious sense. And I think that this religious sense serves an evolutionary purpose at a social level. We, we it was, it was, there were social reasons why we evolved this sense, and it's with us as long as we still have the human nature that we're, you know, we were selected for, and we've turned something like natural selection off. At this point, you know, if we continue to have that same nature, we're still going to have religious concepts. We're still going to have this need for um, fellowship and communion. These feelings of you know, a desire for salvation or, you know, feeling, you know, explanations for feelings of awe and reverence and gratitude. Um, there's just all, there's just so many forms of life that mm. are part of that. We, you know, we, we say the word religion, but that's really, you know, a basket of different forms of life. There's no, that, you know, people say it's really hard to define what a religion is. Well, that's because it encompasses so, so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so yeah. if you just throw one P one, if you just throw one model of God out, it doesn't seem to me like you've done away with religion at all. You still have the forms of life. All you've rejected as an atheist at the most is theism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so I think limiting, limiting our religious concepts also to that very narrow concept model of God is also, I think, a product of, you know, kind of our Western bias. Mm -hmm. Like we, we say, you know, oh, well, if this is just gone, well, then everything's gone. Uh, that moves too fast. So, I mean, if it, if it moves too fast and if there are some other concepts of the divine that need to be explored, is atheist too strong of a title to attribute to yourself? No, so I think that the sense in which I consider myself an atheist is that I believe that the claims that theists make um, are false. And I'm okay. also a naturalist. And so I think that some of the claims that I'm committed to as a naturalist, a naturalist imply that theism is false. So there's, there's kind of two sides to the, you know, I 
have my sympathies with a view that implies uh-huh. theism is false, but it doesn't imply these other religious uh, traditions are false. It only implies that perfect being theism is false. Okay. Well, that's See interesting to me because something like I was, okay, then I was tracking right from the beginning then, but it seems to me that, uh, so that's clarifying. Thank you. Um, but it seems to me that as a naturalist, you can't think too much of animalism or pantheism or panpsychism or any of these other models that uh, are not perfect being theism because they still imply some kind of divine or supernatural, don't they? And so that would mean as a naturalist. I don't think so. So okay. the okay. so to give examples, um, to Sorry. use two examples, pantheism and uh, panpsychism. And so to take the first one, um, the pantheist, we agree that there's just the natural world, that there's, you know, that the, the world is causally closed and, you know, there's the universe and that's it. So ontologically, I have the same views as the pantheist. So what does the pantheist say that some metaphysical naturalists don't want to say or, you know, try to resist? Which is that the divine, what is worthy of our worship and worthy of our awe, is nature. Like that's just it. Like when you look at the universe, when you you know are are awed by you know the 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 wonders of the universe and the intricacies of the you know molecular world, like and you feel awe and reverence. I think those are appropriate responses. So again, I'm gonna just. I agree with the pantheist in these claims. It seems that the only claim that the pantheist makes that the naturalist resists is that the divine is identical to nature. And so the natu- naturalist might just say, well, there's just no reason to say it. We can say all these other things and agree with them. We just don't have to make that claim. So it's really just kind of a superficial label disagreement, um, really, to my mind. Panpsychism is just the idea that mind is fundamental all the way down. And so someone like Galen Strawson is a materialist, but he calls him, he says, I'm a real materialist. Well, what is, what is that? How does putting real at the beginning of materialist, you know, distinguish you from other views? And because he's a panpsychist, because he says, look, that, you know, conscious experience is something that's fundamental. And this idea sounds crazy, this panpsychist idea that, you know, even molecular, you know, molecules have, you know, some bits of proto-conscious experience to them. It sounds crazy, but it's actually the simplest way of solving something like the mind-body problem while also making sense of qualitative experiences like the taste of strawberry within a, a model that he's calling materialist that I would, you know, I would use the word naturalist because materialist, there's there's more baggage that comes along with the term materialist than, than naturalist. And naturalist comes with enough baggage as it is. I want to talk about so, that, actually. I know it wasn't in the set of questions I answered but you, or gave you, but if you'll indulge me. What is the sure. difference between a naturalist and a materialist or a physicalist? How they cash it out. There's yeah. really, so it's just... Are you also a materialist or and a physicalist, or you just so yeah? I I could say that, but I would just I would cash all of those labels out in the same terms, and so they would just be they would for me become synonymous. Me too. Like that. That for me, for simplicity, I don't find any uh, use in drawing the distinctions between um, natural, physical material i know people do draw distinctions and i'm sure those distinctions are very useful in the language games that they're using um well i think it's i think it's useful in some of the ways that people argue for naturalism i'm not saying yourself or any of the people that you would would follow do but i mean i've just in conversations with naturalists they'll want to draw a distinction between naturalism and supernaturalism and then give naturalism a higher lower prior probability just because it posits one less sort of thing all things are natural but it's just like well okay i don't think that god in in that case fine i don't think that god is supernatural i think he's perfectly natural unless you mean uh, that the word natural is synonymous with material or physical then uh, then okay but then i don't know why we're calling it natural 
Yeah, so I see the the natural supernatural divide is kind of lining up with a physical non-physical divide or a material non-material divide. And so again, I just to me it just seems like all of those can just be used synonymous. I'm talking about the causal domain. Yeah. What does the causal domain consist of? Does it conti- consist of m- matter and physical things? Yes. Is that nature? Yes. <laughs> Do I think that there's, you know, something uh, ontologically distinct the supernatural? No. I think that natural reality exhausts causal reality. And if you want to call that causal reality the material reality, awesome. If you want to call mm-hmm. that reality a physical reality, awesome. If you want to call that a neutral something and that they've got two different aspects, a mental and a physical, awesome. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a monist. I'm an ontological monist. I think that when it comes to the causal domain, there's just one thing. It's just one sort of ontological stuff. And that's what we have. And so that might be a universal wave function. That might be in, you know, that's what we call matter. Or something. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's quarks, there's bosons, there's electrons, there's all of these things that science or say are part of the standard model I'm on board with. What quantum, you know, mechanics says, you know, are the these are the observations from weird experience experiments in quantum mechanics. I accept I, I accept the implications of those empirical experiments, and so I'm not trying to butt up against science, um, but I would insist on philosophical grounds that there's just one sort of causal stuff, and that there isn't something beyond the causal domain that we describe with nature. Okay. That makes sense then. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, perhaps we've already touched on this question, but what do you think the strongest arguments in favor of uh, atheism are? Or if not atheism, then naturalism, I suppose. That's why I was meaning we might have already touched on it. No, no it's fair. So, so arguments for naturalism are arguments for atheism because uh, naturalism implies atheism. Good point. Um, so we'll start with theism, um, because unlike many of my uh, atheist peers, I don't subscribe to the dogma that there just is no evidence for theism. I think oh, okay. that's kind of a mantra. Like I don't think. Like I think if you understand evidence probabilistically that's just clearly not right. true but if you push them they always if you push them they always end up meaning whether they admit it or not they always mean there's no good evidence but that's it's obviously i think thing. i think a lot of people in my own camp just don't think seriously enough about the concept of evidence as as much as they emphasize evidence and you know use all the slogans um about evidence their concept of what evidence is, is very lacking. And so when people say, oh, there, philosophy doesn't have any job, uh, that's one of, that's one area where I point go, oh, nope, 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 it definitely has a job here. <laughs> yeah, not to mention that's an interesting philosophical perspective. Yeah, and for on all <laughs> sides. Like it's one of those things like, yeah. you know, if you want to have a conversation about comparing worldviews, you're going to have to appeal to evidence. Yeah. And if you can't have a working concept of evidence that all parties to the discussion can agree on, you're the one lacking. You're the one coming to the discussion without that concept. Mm. And so, and I think if any, whatever, whatever the most plausible concept of evidence is, it is going to concede to the theist that there are some observations that count in favor of theism. There's just no way to get around it. Like if, if you deny that, then you just have an implausible right. account of evidence. And we can flesh that out. Once it once you, we finally pin down what that concept is that they're using, it will be very simple to show that that's just an implausible account of evidence. Anyways, I'm, there you go. It's it's one of my pet peeves within my own camp. Get so. up there on that stool. I don't care. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so I don't think that there are any particularly strong arguments for theism, but I th- do think that there's at least four modest arguments for theism that we can say, look, these are evidential chips that fall in favor of theism. 
If we're just dispensing with burdens of justification and following evidence where it leads, these four chips fall in favor of theism. And so I think the first is moral agency. So the fact that there are moral agents in the world um, is more likely on theism than naturalism. Why? Because theism implies the existence of at least one moral agent, God. So the, the, the probability of observing a moral agent on theism is one. Yeah. Now, naturalism just cannot make any similar claim. There is just no implication of naturalism that can come close. Can I just say that, that as a theist, I wouldn't even agree with that. But anyway, that would be a different <laughs> discussion. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. But um, another straightforward chip, I think, is the fact that people have religious experiences and mm -hmm. cogent religious experiences. Experiences that move people to have to change their very forms of life. Um, theism gives us a very ready explanation for why people have religious experiences yeah. it's because it's they're communicating with the divine. Now, do I think that that evidence is undercut by other facts? Yes, but we won't get into that right now. Straightforward. If we're just in a vacuum mm -hmm. talking about which better predicts religious experiences, it's theism. Beauty is, I think another one. Now I realize this is a controversial datum. Not everyone believes that aesthetic properties are in the world. For real, yeah. But I do. I am a realist about aesthetic properties. So, And I think aesthetic properties are more likely given theism than naturalism. Naturalism doesn't give us any reason to predict aesthetic properties. You know, properties that something like, you know, Mozart would have. Like naturalism just isn't going to explain that like theism can. And so then I think the last one, which is, again, controversial, but I think it's interesting, is if the universe began to exist, if it was finite, like, I think it's still an open question whether or not the universe began to exist or is finite. Um, I'm inclined to think that it's eternal, but I can't, like, I wouldn't bet my house on it. No mm -hmm. way. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that that's, you know, if the steady state um, view of the universe was to favor naturalism and something like creation ex nihilo, a beginning, a beginning to the universe was to favor something like theism. Well, then you just have to let the evidential chips fall where, you know, yeah. it, you know, this is, this is how the chip fell. This one falls in favor of theism. Mm. Um, well, so I think that's all very honorable of you. And uh, this was something I was going to mention earlier. And uh, you just kind of demonstrated it, which is what reminded me of it. But, uh, you know, I was uh, I was raised on Dawkins and uh, the rest of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And I just can't help but notice in recent times, perhaps it's even earlier than recent times. But in recent times, it seems like more people are moving into this camp that I would I would say that you are in, which is, you know, just a. Uh, Thoughtful atheists. I don't know how else to say that. Very, yeah. you know, actually doing the philosophy of religion type of atheists instead of, as a, I guess the best real way to, atheology, atheo, uh, real atheologians. Yeah, yeah, atheologians. Real atheologians. There we go. I, I, do you think more people are moving into that camp? No, I wish they were, and that's. I mean, that's the tide I'm trying to turn. I think they are. Um, or at least I can't I'm just get finding. people in my camp to even budge on the definition of atheism it's embarrassing oh that shit yeah that's funny that's a good one it's right. it drives me absolutely insane right I just go look you're not conceding anything to the theist that's like, the point just, is like just everything is about winning like if, if, if we can't yeah like if we can't like if we cannot even agree on the terms we're going to use on the rules of the language game why are you here <laughs> like what is the conversation that you want to have where you're just going to say no you're going to play my language game or no language game at all and okay. of course you'll find uh mirror images on the on the theist side and if i belong in in the shitty theist camp i'm sorry i don't think that i do but uh anyway yeah i was just wondering if you thought that the tides were turning i guess you're more pessimistic than i am but uh I thought that they were, but I guess I could be wrong. I've I noticed, don't feel it. 
Maybe yeah. they are. So I don't have it. So again, these are my hunches. I don't have any sort of empirical data. To right. Back me this either. Up. That's why I, <laughs> um, I was asking if anybody else felt the same way. But <laughs> we're definitely trying. We felt like it was a hole in the. Well, you have a you have a giant following. Well, now, um, it wasn't always that way. <laughs> I wonder if most of them are theists. <laughs> but I, probably. So I feel like I get interact. I am much more. Um, Theists are less hostile to me than other atheists, well, so believe it or not. You will find, I'm sure you get this criticism from those in that other atheist count, like uh, theists in disguise, or, you know, because I see this mirror image in politics as well. Anybody that dares to think outside the box is accused by one side or the other as being a Democrat in disguise or a Republican in disguise, you know. So yeah. probably people play that game with you, and there probably are theists who are only butting up to you because you are somewhat nice at this. But more likely, I, or on the other side of things, there's probably a lot of theists who you're going to be able to convince uh, to switch camps. I mean, not that you are trying to convince them, but they will be convinced by your level-headedness. Maybe. Um, in my experience, what I've found is theists that are excited to finally have a discussion in a serious way about questions that they find very interesting already. And that yeah. for like something like me, who's familiar with the literature on both sides of this debate and are willing to have these sorts of discussions are just things that aren't found often mm -hmm. in my circles, which is why I'm pessimistic that there's, you know, all these people um, you know, flocking into this more rational camp because when you when you just ask theists their interactions with atheists, it's often very you know very smug attitudes. It's you know um, kind of dodgy, um, you know point counterpoint, but you know avoid giving any specific arguments, only mm -hmm. tearing down um, you know theistic models but not offering any models of their own and that's because, it's that's because that goes back to the definition yeah i was uh if you're a lack uh, theist you don't have any burden you don't need to build anything up i was i, I recently got to debate trent horn um and so he and i kind of hung out the whole weekend um before the debate and we were, you know, so we talked a ton of philosophy, um, as you know, just as much as we could. And he was he was making this point about people that he's debated with in the past, where um, I think uh, the the name I won't I won't use the name just in case I'm not supposed to do that. Um, he was like, you know, I gave arguments, and he just didn't respond to my arguments like at mm. all. And, you know, when confronted during the debate, you know, like, well, why aren't you responding to the arguments that I gave? And they just kind of dismissed him with, yeah, but those are just words. Those are just words up there. And that's just, that's all sophistry. Arguments are not evidence. Yeah. If, yeah. You know, so, you know, basically saying this and, you know, Trent, Trent was like, he's like, it's, it feels so defeating to get up to have invested so much time right, have done and so much effort and... to get because you know before a debate you know you're nervous you you know you're thinking about all the different moves that could be going on your go you know going back and forth and you get up there you have all this work done and then they're just not even meeting you on that ground at all you never yeah you never imagined <laughs> that you were going to have to go up there and defend the legitimacy of an argument per se yeah. <laughs> it's you get you and, or you just end up talking past each other, yeah. and so you know, someone keeps saying, "Well, so and so, so and so believes." Well, and the other person's like, "Well, no, I don't actually believe that. I believe this." Mm -hmm. And you know, it's we we try to minimize that as much as possible. Well, you um, got a I, lot of compliments, including some directly from Trent Horn. That must have felt oh, it felt like awesome. a really oh, awesome sure. accomplishment. Well, yeah, because and so behind behind the scenes, we both, um, you know, we had told each other we were like, "Hey, we're being invited to this event. Event, you know, this is a Protestant event, and a Catholic is being invited, oh, yeah, and an Catholic, atheist yeah. is being invited. Hmm. So, like, we're not like Trent's more home team hmm. than I am, 
in right. this, but like, right. It's the one time Protestants like, are like, go Catholic. Yeah. So we're like, we have to raise the level of discourse in this exchange. Like we have to give a good debate. Like, mm-hmm. um, the, the word that I'm, I'm, I'm really liking right now is, you know, let our arguments clash with each yeah. other as much as possible so that people can watch this and take a lot away from it for years yeah. to come. You know, they can come back, you know, like, Oh, well, I wonder what it would look like if a naturalist and a Catholic had a debate, a serious debate. We, we did that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this even before y'all's debate, but this was y'all's debate was just another example. But, uh, you know, when at one point, Dr. Craig uh, says that, uh, Graham Oppie is by far the most, uh, challenging or, uh, I can't think of the exact wording, but he just paid a really high compliment to Graham Oppie. And I thought, damn, that has got to feel good when your opponent pays you a really high compliment you know you, you must have done a good job and so i thought and then i saw that with trent horn and yourself and i thought that that's got to feel pretty good yeah but, jo- uh, josh rasmussen came up to me afterwards and complimented me on the debate that we had and it another, really felt good like yeah. to have josh rasmussen come up and like it's hard not to get big-headed yeah it, yeah it really <laughs> is it really is i was just like oh man that's thanks man like and like he, so I had a copy of his book, um, oh. how reason can lead to God. And so like he signed my book for me sweet. and like, yeah. And so it was, it was a lot of fun and it was, uh, the camaraderie was really like at the end of the day. We all, we, we had everyone there had radically different views in some respect, but we were all there really because of philosophy. You know, that's you, really what you, brought us together. Will you look back on this? I'm curious. I'm just, the curious person, I guess. Will you look back on this debate with Trent and think that was the breakthrough moment? Because it seems like a lot of people know who you are now. And maybe <laughs> they already did. Maybe I didn't know that, but it seems like certainly. I think it is is a uh, break for, breakthrough moment in the sense that, um, just like you said, uh, my exposure has increased because of because of it. If I had to pick a kind of breakthrough moment, it would have been about a little over a year ago now when I debated. Friar Gregory Pine. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know you did that. That'd be another good one. Yeah. 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 So on Pints with Aquinas, um, I, I debated Friar Gregory Pine. And I don't know if you've ever spoken with Friar Gregory Pine. He's just, he's as cool a dude as you think he is. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't had him on the show, but I have listened to him. Yeah. He's just, he was so much fun. He was so gracious. And, you know, but it was my first opportunity to have that, you know, kind of big stage. And I had been working on a classical theist slash Thomas project um, since like 2017 or something, you know, like we started it thinking, oh, we'll do like six months of like a Thomas slash. No, it's turned into like, you know, now a four year project. Like, well, you'll either have to cut yourself off or it'll become a lifetime project. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, I really cannot emphasize like any, anyone listening, like I really cannot overemphasize just how deep, you know, the, there is no just skimming over classical theist tradition. They don't fully understand Aquinas. (laughs) People like Father Gregory, uh, Father Gregory Pine and you know the just you can devote you can devote your entire life to thinking about it. and so it's just another so for me it's just another way I've expanded my philosophy of religion re, philosophy of religion religion arsenal I just have this other tradition that I'm familiar um, mm. familiar with like listen to me talk about like I'm semi familiar with sure I'm I mean I know you becoming mean, yeah. much more familiar but you know like I can I can talk in um, different models of God I, I you know there's I've done a project on presuppositional apologetics. I've done, you know, one on natural theology for in the, you know, theistic personalist tradition. So like I can move from model of God to model of God. And I, this, it's just amazing how much your um, purview opens when you, when you decide to jump in and tackle something like that. Yeah. It, it's um my, Perspective has been expanded a lot by reading some of these uh, more theistic personalist types because, man, when that well, – I won't say when it first hit the scene, but whenever it has become more popular in recent years and first came across my spectrum at least, I was just like, I don't know how anybody thinks this. But <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is someone who comes from more of a classical theist background. 
And so, but, uh, you know, reading the actual literature has broadened my perspective. And I didn't mean, I don't know how anybody thinks this disrespectfully. I mean, just because I didn't even know that was on the table. I've just always assumed it was classical, perfect being theist or, you know, a totally different religion. But, uh, yeah. And, I, you know, I followed William Lane Craig for the longest time without even realizing that he had such strong critiques of classical theism. And uh, that wasn't a turnoff for me i still think because i just wasn't studying him for those purposes i was studying craig's work for, you know for what he's but he gives <laughs> a defense of mere theism too you know he right. has, so his, he he has his theology stuff, disagreements you, think, but... you can't tell that he's gonna have such strong words against uh divine simplicity or something like which is actually i don't in some sense, I think Craig does agree with divine simplicity, you know, but he just thinks everything is divine, divinely simple. Um, but anyway, that's a totally different topic. Well, he, importantly, he thinks that God's in time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He thinks that God is, is not timeless. But he was timeless. Yeah. That's the thing is, golly. He wasn't he was, he was timeless prior to creation. And right. Which to me is an impossible change of affairs. But uh, <laughs> that's another yeah. topic for this, a that's, discussion. That's a, that's, a, that's a disagreement in your camp. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah. That's one in my camp. Um, um, what did the. We've talked about. Did you, did you, if, unless you had something else to say, but go ahead. I was going to move into the arguments for atheism. So we talked yeah, about the arguments for theism. Um, so I think that there are two pretty strong arguments for atheism. Um, and so I think those are the argument from evil and the argument from divine hiddenness. So I think the reason why these arguments are so strong is because they just admit of very strong formulations. There's deductive, um, formulations of each one. Um, and so it's not, it's, it's a very, they're very big chips that um, I think fall in favor of atheism. And then I think there's about four modest um, lines of evidence that um, kind of you know, chips that fall in favor of atheism. And so the first is the physical dependence of minds. So the fact that all of the minds that we're acquainted with and non-controversial examples of mental activity all have physical structures that they depend on, um, embodied brains. So everything from humans um, to other mammals, all mental activity we know, physical basis. This is my um, argument against the – I want to – sorry, I just want to jump in if that's okay. This is why I don't buy into the theistic personalist camp right here because when Craig says something like um, God is a disembodied mind, I think – that's that's not even possible. Yeah. I mean, to, I mean, so yeah, I think if you conceive of God as a disembodied that, mind, yeah. then the physical dependencies of the dependence of mind is just a straightforward observation that counts against that view. Yeah. Um, and so uh, another chip I think is biological evolution. So I think special creation is what theism would predict, and I think that biological evolution is what a mindless chance process like naturalism would predict. Um, Widespread religious disagreement. I think that's another chip. So I think that there would be a relative, you know, religious consensus if there was this perfect being that cared about, you know, what we believed, why we believed it, you know, depended our salvation on it. Um, the secular success of science. So I think it's, you know, the more secular that the natural science have gotten, um, the more successful they've been. So the, you know, the very mechanism for their success was removing God from the picture. And so I think that's very surprising. I think that if theism was um, true, that it would um, predict that God's actions would be events in the world that our best sciences would have to account for. Um, but because we don't have to account for them, I think that's evidence for atheism or naturalism rather than theism. And so those are the four, I think... Um, I'm kind of still on the fence about a fifth on the hostility of the universe towards life. I think that's mm. surprising. Um, but I think that's also a pretty weak chip. That's a smaller chip. That's um, doesn't have anything near um, the evidential the, weight. Would that not fit with a problem of evil or it could. So that's, that is exactly like how much of this argument is a unique chip um, mm. and how much of it is, it's just, a 
rendition of another argument like the argument from evil. Um, mm -hmm. cause you don't want to double count evidence. Right. Um, that's like one, like when you, if you're trying to let evidential chips fall, it's very yeah. important that we don't double count evidence. And oh, so yeah, how much, bit, yeah, yeah it, exactly. Exactly. So like, um, when you're using something like a probability calculus and you're understanding evidence probabilistically, it's really, really important to demark all the assumptions that you're using. You know, your, your probabilistic model is only as good as the assumptions that you're plugging into it. And so you want to be able to demarcate all those assumptions and put in every line, everything up. Um, so that you're only counting each each observation that you're appealing to stands on its own. It's probabilistically independent. It's not somehow, you know, just another way of saying this other chip or is using the same assumption. You know, if you made an assumption over here in this argument from evil and you're using that same assumption here to, you know, in the... Um, argument from the hostility of the universe, you've double count, you know, <laughs> you've double counted the evidence by doing that. Yeah. And so that's one way to help you not make that mistake. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you a question about the argument from evil, if that's okay. And if this, and I'm For sure, if it's not something that you've th thought deep enough about to answer on, I won't take it as a, I got you. I just say, I haven't thought about that and I'll move on to something else. Cause I didn't send you this question ahead of time is, is why I'm prefacing. These are my thought. favorite kinds of questions. Okay. Well, good. But, uh, so I'm thinking along the lines of something and only because I don't know a lot of people who have responded to this. Uh, maybe you'll have a prima facie answer. Maybe you have already thought about this, but, um, Brian Davies has a book. Uh, he's, uh, he's a Catholic, philosopher the and, reality uh, of evil yes. and the and basically yeah. the reality the of god is the problem of evil uh-huh the strongest point in that book in my opinion is that uh actually god is not a moral agent um whenever we get down to it whenever we say god is good we don't mean morally good and so you couldn't make moral predictions about what he would would do or not do about evil, about stopping evil, about preventing evil, however you want to phrase it. How does that affect the problem of evil, if at all? And uh, kind of what are your thoughts on that, since it sounds like you are familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. So um, my philosophy mentor uh, is a Thomist. So uh, Dr. William Brenner, I have a, one of his papers right here. Um, I got to put, I got to mark up notes for him before Sunday. I better get on that. Um, I'm sorry, are you so in school? He, I'm not uh, currently. I currently have a child. I, it's on hold. <laughs> I was just wondering if this was like a professor or, or what. Yeah, that... so I have – he is a former professor of mine, um, okay. but he's since retired. Um, and so – but he still writes and he still helps me with my writing. And so okay, cool. we try to meet every Sunday and just kind of oh, – okay. So it's just kind of a relationship you all have. I was wondering if it was more formal yeah. like teacher-student. That's why I was asking. No, no, school, no. So. Yeah, so um, – he gave me Dave, Brian Davies' book very early in my philosophy career. And so it was actually one of the first um, kind of real attempts to look at the problem of evil for me from a Thomist perspective. And so this idea that God is not a moral agent. And so I think that um, when we're looking at the problem of evil, what have we denied when we say that God is a moral agent? And it seems to me that we've denied God's moral perfection. Mm -hmm. And so can we do that? Um, and I think that there's a problem for this move. I think the problem for this move is, is that we don't actually start from, you know, this perfect being. We start from this idea of being wholly worthy of our worship. So per the, the central claim of what I call perfect being theism is that there is a being that always demands our worship, our attention, and our reverence. That's his, you know, and Anselm says, you know, the greatest possible being. Um, yeah. You know, it's been described as, you know, a maximally great being, a being of none greater that can be conceived. So it's right. this idea of just maximally worth worship. And so when we have that concept, what could be of most moral value? 
So if we think that morality, morality has this kind of overriding feature, it's this feature that's um, trumps all other concerns, this moral feature. So what could be of most moral value? Well, the answer to that question is a perfect being that had these properties that cared about us and would make things go impartially best for everyone. That would be a maximally great being. And so it just seems like what we're denying when we say that God is not a moral agent is that we're saying that God just isn't this maximally great being. And so that just seems that's a that's a huge tip. That seems like a huge cost that once you've it would taken be. Yeah. Um, so the payoff is is that you avoid the problem of evil because there just isn't a tension between moral perfection and the evils in the world because denies moral perfection. <laughs> so if you could uh, if you could avoid what you see as the opportunity cost, it would be a uh, escape from the problem of evil. Yes, by denying that God is morally perfect. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Because the problem only well, arises just happy to, because I'm we have an omnipotent and morally perfect being. Mm -hmm. So um, an omnipotent being could eliminate all unjustified right. evil. A morally perfect being would be maximally motivated to do so. I do so. Well, yeah. take the maximal moral, moral being exactly. out of the equation. Yeah, there's no there's no problem now. There's no tension. There's no problem yeah. of evil in that view. Well, I'm just happy that you've even heard of this objection, um, <laughs> because a lot of people that I come in contact with either haven't, or and you and these people probably haven't either. But their knee jerk response is always that actually I haven't escaped the problem of evil anyway, even if what I said was true, which. I'm just like, and they always have a reason, but it's never very good. The, the, I think it the would. bigger, the bigger hole. So where my, so my professor is a Thomist, like I said. Mm -hmm. So where I pressed back the most when I was working through Brian Davies is so Brian Davies endorses what's known as the privation theory of evil, and so he's yeah. he doesn't see God as a moral agent, but he does see. Um, he doesn't even see God as a being among beings. He sees God as the ground of yeah. being itself. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he is the, whatever he wills with substance, form, and being just is goodness. That's what it means for the world to be like it just has. And so like if we uh, perceive evil in the world, it's because there's some form, substance, and being that is missing. And if we were to mm. add this substance form and being to this thing, it would then be good. And so that's the privation view of evil. And so I, that's where I push back. I wanted to say that view is false. Well, I'm inclined towards that view, but I don't think that just that alone solves a lot. Cause some people would just say that, well, goodness, I mean, uh, evil doesn't exist anyway. It's a privation and just pretend like that alone is a response to the problem of evil because all you have to do is reword the problem. Well, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd still have a problem of the missing good. Right, exactly. Yeah, you just need to reword things. So, I mean, I think it's... I'm, well, so it's, the it's problem funny, that it's originally trying to solve, not, I think it's but... with Anselm. Uh, someone correct me in the comments if I'm mistaken. But I'm pretty sure it begins with Anselm. And he goes, you know, look, God sustains everything in being. Like, how could he sustain evil? That'd be weird. You know, how could this, you know, being that's wholly good, you know, there are no imperfections in God. How can it be the case that he sustains something like evil in being? And so this was, uh, you know, this was the payoff of the view is you know, he doesn't. <laughs> um, right. You know, evil doesn't have positive being in the world. Kind of, you know, we can use an analogy nowadays, you know, um, darkness doesn't have any positive being in the world. Right. Coldness doesn't have any being in the world. Um, darkness is just the light. absence of light, and coldness is just the absence of molecular kinetic energy. Right. And so it's it's something like that. And so if you wanted, you know, you could just if you wanted to get rid of dark, you could just add light to it. Yeah. Well, why isn't and, there more light? You know, that like just rewording things, but. 
Exactly. Yeah. But, but that's, that's the general strategy of getting out. And, and uh, so that's Dave, uh, Brian Davies endorses the privation, privation theory, theory of evil yeah. um, in, in that book. And so that's, and so does my uh, uh, mentor, Dr. Brenner. And so that's where I've developed a lot of my own th- uh, work um, is particularly a moral philosophy is pressing back on mm. that privation theory of evil. I, I in my debate with Trent Horn, I, that's I, I, my second rebuttal. Trent I'm Horn. I'm sure he went that route. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, a large chunk of that was just dedicated to responding to the privation theory of evil. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move to, we're coming up on an hour, but I really want to ask you this question before we Sure, end. sure, sure. Uh, can atheists have objective morality? And if so, um, how should that be grounded? Or kind of what's the moral philosophy here? Yeah. So um, I think the answer is yes. So, um, and I will also say that it is complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so meta-ethics, the, uh, you know, how, can there be something like morality um, given theism? The answer is obviously yes, because every meta-ethical position on the table, um, as far as the broad views, are shared by, um, you know, atheists ha- are in all the camps. Um, so to give a rough and dirty picture, um, there's the non-cognitivist camp. So the non-cognitivists are nihilists in that they don't believe that there are these moral truths. Um, but they don't believe that moral statements even function as truth statements. So to say that morality is true or false is to just misunderstand morality entirely. Um, there's another camp, the cognitivists. And so that was, I just characterized the non-cognitivists. The cognitivists say, no, they are truth. They're truth apt statements. This is how it functions. So all the other camps are cognitivist. And so the nihilists who are error theorists say, look, this is how our language functions, but there just are no moral properties. So all of our moral sentences are false. Um, Subjectivists say, look, yeah, there are moral truths, but what makes them true are facts about subjects. So these are the subjectivists. Then there are the naturalists. So the naturalists believe that, look, there are facts about humans that don't depend on our attitudes or responses. And they are what ground our moral facts. And so moral facts just are natural facts. There are no other uniquely moral facts. They're just a special kind of natural fact. And so then there's my camp, the non-naturalist camp. And so the non-naturalist camp is the idea that there are these unique moral properties in the world that are objective, but they don't, they cannot be reduced to natural facts. They're their own type of fact. Most people are familiar with this distinction if they've heard of Hume's is-ought distinction. So it's the non-naturalist that says, look, there's a gap between is-facts and ought-facts. You Mm -hmm. can't reduce ought-facts to is-facts and keep Hume's is-ought distinction intact. So guess what the big objection is to the ethical naturalists? All ethical naturalists have to respond to Hume's is odd. Mm-hmm. Like that's just, you know, kind of like if you're going to be an ethical naturalist, you just have to respond to that <laughs> right. objection. And so that's, that's kind of the big dividing line. And so an atheist can take any position on this spectrum and divine command theory, which is, and, classical uh, natural law theory find their home in the it I hate the language of natural ethical naturalism and ethical non-naturalism because when you throw in the philosophy of religion we've put those terms to use elsewhere I was just um, say it sounds like you're a supernaturalist but yeah uh, well and so it sounds weird <laughs> to say that the classical theist and the words. divine command theorists are ethical naturalists but that's what they are you think that um, the divine command theorist is as well Yes, because they're reducing morality to the command, to is facts, what God has commanded 
or what God is like. Um, oh, it's in God's so, nature. Yeah, if you want to play, if that's your escape from the Euthyphro dilemma, which I think is incoherent, but yeah. Um, <laughs> and so um, the I forget about that. the right. non-naturalist is, is going to say, look, moral truths, moral properties are just irreducible. We cannot cash out moral properties in entirely non-moral terms. And so if so someone is it intuition. Oh yeah. Yeah. Rational intuition. Yes. That's what so you would, same would with like mathematics to? and logic. So it's not an empirical, um, you know, like mm -hmm. I could know all the facts about how to extend human lives hundreds of years in the future. I could know all of the scientific facts about that. And then none of them would tell me whether or not we should. Um, Extend lives hundreds of years in the future. There's just there's no empirical test to settle a moral though? question. Why is the, the view that reduces? Why is the uh, view that reduces to intuition not subjective? So we're just when you say about intuition, we're just talking about how we come to knowledge of these truths. So by rational intuition, well, so the same so way it's that not I our intuition that makes it true. Correct. Okay. So if I say that pain is bad, yeah. I'm not making a claim about me or my intuitions. I might be using my intuition to know that pain has this property of badness, but I'm making that a claim sense. about pain. That I'm makes saying sense. Yeah. pain Sorry, has a property and that property is counting in favor of me not wanting to be in it. Everyone has this pro pain. Like I look at pain from the outside, which, you know, obviously we can't do completely because, you know, our subjective experiences requires us, you know, to kind of be locked in our particular perspective. But when I try to, you know, examine pain from the outside, if someone were to just hold their hand over a stove just for the sake of holding their hand over their stove, we said that person has a reason to move their hand. That's not a fact about me. That's not even a fact about their psychology. Their psychology wants them to put their hand on that stove, but I'm saying no. What it's like to be in that state counts in favor of you moving your hand. That is a reason for you to yeah. move your hand. And I think that's an objective way of thinking about reasons. And so using the concept of reasons, we can develop principles. And once we have enough principles, we can have theories about those um, what would principles, you say, and we're in normative ethics at that point. I'm a bit confused, so I'll ask one question that I think might clarify. What would you say the object is that makes it makes moral statements true? If it's objective, what is the object? So the norm, some, so the value is found in the object of judgment. So it can only be one of two places. So if we're talking about value, again, this is a, you know, where the meta ethics can become very abstract, very quick. Uh -huh. So if I say that pain is bad, there's only two places that this value, this badness could be. It could either be in the object of my judgment, pain, or it could be in my su the subject of the judgment, me making the judgment. You see what I'm saying? Now, we might branch that, you know, that's simple subjectivism. We might branch that out and say, look, this is how the community responds to pain. Or we might say, this is how God responds to pain. We'd increase the numbers of sub subjects, but the, the disagreement between subjectivists and objectivists is the order of normative explanation here. Do we explain subjects the rightness and wrongness of subjects via the normative, the objects of our normative judgments, or do we explain the value of the objects of our judgment by the responses of subjects? So a lot of people think that subject, subjectivists and objectivists disagree about the contents of the world. They don't. They disagree about the order of normative explanation. Right. It's uh, I just can't. Hmm. It's I tough. Need, it's, I need it's to either abstract. look into it more, or I'm I'm because in my mind, hearing this, my initial thoughts are: this either reduces <clears throat> to subjectivism, or it's very actually close to the, what you're calling the naturalist position. 
um, because that's what the common denominator is going to be. But that's that's from my perspective, which is obviously biased towards the, the natural. So, so people who are interested in this view, um, I highly recommend Thomas Nagel's um, The Last Word. Interesting recommendation. And, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so basically the, the thesis of that book is that we can't get behind reasons. Reasons are fundamental. Um, reason always has the last word um, because there's just no getting behind them. And so once that book really gave me the framework to understand this ethical non-naturalist view, that is um, Thomas Nagel defends this view as well. Um, but Derek Parfit, Tim Scanlon, if anyone's ever seen The Good Place, the book that they hold up in that book, uh, in that show, uh, What We Owe to Each Other, that's Tim Scanlon. They have this, what's, you know, I'm calling an ethical non-naturalist view. And it's very abstract. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's a very armchair philosophy exercise. And so if you're opposed to armchair philosophy, um, it might not be that interesting of a project, but if you're really serious about thinking about, you know, meta ethics at its deepest level. Um, mm. Those well, are the, anything those are I the don't guys. understand. Anything I don't understand is interesting to me just because I'm such a narcissist. I can't stand it. So I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll be looking into that. Uh, well, Ben, this has been a lot of fun and very fruitful for me at least. And I'm sure the audience will agree. Um, you've got a, a few fans in the in the live chat. I don't know if you can see the screen or not that I'm throwing the comments up there or not, but uh, you got some fans that uh, I knew awesome. that you would, I, from the CCV or uh, from the cross, uh, Capturing Christianity. I almost almost said cross-Canadian ragweed. That's hilarious. The uh, uh, Capturing Christianity uh, debate you did there. And so I knew you would get quite a following from that. Some of them have come to the live chat. Uh, ben, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Again, I'm very fruitful. I'm very happy that we did this. Look forward to seeing your work and, and everyone else over there at the Real Atheology uh, podcast. Uh, seeing where that goes in the future, I'm sure there's only bright days ahead. Um, to the listener, if you uh, enjoyed the show, <clears throat> again, be sure to hit the like button, subscri subscribe, leave us a review if you're listening to the podcast. And of course, if you benefit from the show, be sure to Go over to the Patreon page, follow the link in the description below, and become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. It's at patreon.com forward slash Hayden Clark. And be sure to follow the links in the description over to uh, Ben's website as well as this, the YouTube channel and the podcast. Subscribe. Do all of those good things for Ben because we need more Ben Watkins in the world. And uh, I'm optimistic that there are more up and coming. Ben's less optimistic than I am, but we'll see. Ben, any final words? Um, yeah, so, uh, I would just encourage everyone to let evidential chips fall where they may and proportion your beliefs to the evidence, um, and that you have nothing to lose and everything to gain from an honest pursuit of truth. And that's kind of my plug. Amen and amen. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. We'll see you next time. Thank you.